Uh, it is um, uh, my intention to do the opposite uh, with the Ten Commandments, uh, the opposite of what we did with the, um, uh, the Ten Plagues. Uh, you'll notice that before we kind of covered nine plagues in one sermon, the tenth plague in one sermon, and then moved on. Um, the, the plan here is to do the opposite, uh, which means that, that we, I intend to spend the next ten Sundays, uh, one each on each commandment. Uh, they're that important, uh, that worthy of our intention. And I hope you'll notice, um, I, don't, I don't know that I will necessarily um, uh, call attention to the hymn we just sang uh, during the course of the sermon, but but I hope what you'll do is you'll kind of go back and glance at the verses of that hymn and pay attention uh, to where uh, each verse really sort of shows up, uh, even as we consider the first commandment this morning. Uh, so this morning, Exodus chapter 20, just the first three verses. So let me ask that you stand as we read God's word together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would um, teach us, grow us, open our ears to hear, uh, our minds to understand, our hearts to embrace the truth of your word, that we might love you uh, more deeply. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You may be seated. I assume that you don't often uh, mix up, mess up uh, your use of the phrase have to and the phrase get to. Already, your brains are like, no, we never, we never sort of use get to when we really mean have to. And we never use have to when we really mean get to. And the reality is, we would rarely, if ever, use them both to describe the same action. Right? I have to go to school. I get to have recess. I get to go home at the end of my school day. I have to go to the store. I, um, you know, I have to do yard work. I get to watch soccer or Clemson football, neither of which could I do yesterday. Neither one of them happened. We use have to to talk about the things that we really don't want to do, but we know are necessary and and their requirements. And if we don't do them, you know, if I don't go to the grocery store, then I won't have food at home to eat and there won't be, you know, we'll be hungry. So I have to go to the store. Of course, I'd, I'd rather do something else, which, which would be a get-to. I would, I would rather do something more fun, more enjoyable, something more, I don't know, delightful. And those are the get-to things. It's rare. Um, I really can't think of, quite honestly, any examples when we would use one or the other interchangeably for the same action except perhaps the commandments. Because that's actually the goal. That's actually intent. The the intent of the commandments is that when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we should understand them as both a have to and a get to. 
They should be both a duty and a delight. They should be commands for us to follow and a joy for us to keep. But why? Well, first of all, this seems as as good a place as any uh, because I at least need to call attention, and this is particularly where that last hymn is going to be helpful. I need to call attention to what's the point of the law? What's the purpose of the law? When we're given the Ten Commandments, when we're given the moral law, what is the goal? What is their function? And the Reformed world has, has long known, long understood that there really are three uses of the moral law. The first is that they point us to Jesus. You read the Ten Commandments and you say to yourself, I actually don't do that. I don't do that one either. I'm really not very good at that one. This one, you know, right? I mean, you read through the Ten Commandments and it, it serves as a mirror to show you your guilt, to show you where you fall short of God's glory. And that should, in return, make you say, I got to find me somebody who can do this for me because I can't do it myself. So the first use of this moral law is to show you your sin and to point you to Jesus. You see this in Romans 3. Uh, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Uh, Romans 5, where the law increased, sin increased. Just as Adam failed in his obedience as the first Adam, so Jesus the greater, the second Adam Uh, fulfilled all righteousness for me. This, by the way, is why I often say um, that when people ask you, what does Jesus do for you? Your answer should not be, he died for my sins. I mean, that's true, but it's not complete because he also lived for your righteousness. He lived because you don't have righteousness. The absence of sin is not enough. You need righteousness. So, Um, But that's a different sermon for another day. The second use of the moral law is that these commandments make good civil laws. Nations should use this as a guideline for the laws that they make. The third use is for Christians. These Ten Commandments tell us how we can honor and glorify God in our daily lives. It's a reflection of our sanctification. If the, if the first use has to do with our justification, this third use has to do with our sanctification. This is God's desire for redeemed people to live in response of that redemption. It's a guide for Christian living. And as we focus, as we make our way through the Ten Commandments, we'll focus on the first and third uh, of those uses. First, I want you to notice these commandments are given in the context of a covenant relationship. Look at verses 1 and 2. I I made a big deal about this a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to make a big deal about it again because it's just that important. Um, Notice that before any commandment is given, uh, before there's any you shall, before there's any thou shalt, before there's any sort of explicit rules given, God reminds the people of Israel who they are and what He has done for them. He reminds them of their special relationship with Him. Or perhaps better, His special relationship with them. 
when they left Egypt, it was his doing. When the bonds of, of slavery in Egypt were broken, it was because God himself broke them. When they needed deliverance and freedom and they couldn't do it themselves, God made that happen. God accomplished it. He's the one who saved them. Notice verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have done the work that you could not. And notice, and you're getting tired of it, notice the word Lord in your English Bible is all capitals. That's the way the English translators remind you this is God's covenant-making, covenant-keeping name, Yahweh. The name given to Moses back in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. In other words, this reminds us, you read verse 2 and your brain should actually jump to Abraham. Wait, hold on. Abraham? Abraham's not here. Abraham's not at this mountain. No, but they're here precisely because God made a promise to Abraham hundreds, plural, of years before. He told Abraham, look, by the way, your descendants, they're going to spend time in Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years. They're going to be slaves, but I'm going to bring them out. So Abraham, just know that your your descendants, your offspring, they're going to to be in Egypt and, and they're going to be there for 400 years, but I'm going to take care of them and I'm going to deliver them. And already when he says, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of bondage, out of the house of slavery in Egypt, and you're thinking, wait. That's covenant language. That reminds me of a covenant God made with Abraham and he's doing the very thing he said he would do hundreds of years before. Of course, that should encourage us a little, right? God's timing isn't always our timing. Like 400 minutes would be too long. 400 seconds may be bearable. But 400 years? That's just absolutely uncalled for in our minds. And yet, God is being faithful to the promises, to fulfill the promise that He made to Abraham. Um, But the verbs matter also. Don't you love going to worship and getting an English grammar lesson at the same time? The verbs matter. There's one present tense verb. God says, I am. It's, um, it's always present tense. That's the thing about a present tense verb. It's always present tense. So when Moses heard the word, I am, God was the Lord, their God, who brought them out. When we read the word, I am, he's still the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. He's, he hasn't changed. He's no different. But then there's a past tense verb brought you not I'm going to bring you if not well I'm in the process and hey by the way while we're walking out of Egypt let's talk for a second shall we let's have a conversation about how this is going to go no God's giving the commandments to already delivered people that matters the commandments were never intended to be a means of salvation. They were never supposed to be do these things and you will live. This is 
This is covenant of grace, not covenant of works. We can have that conversation over coffee or lunch or dinner if you so desire. If you're like, well, hold on, time out, spend more time there, we can't. But you need to understand that salvation from Genesis 3 all the way to the end of your Bible, to the maps and beyond, salvation has always been by grace alone. Nowhere, nowhere is man saved by his obedience. Nowhere is man, man saved by some faithfulness to some written code. Salvation has always been by grace. And so as God begins these Ten Commandments, He begins with a reminder, you're already in a covenant relationship with Me. And so at some level, you're already thinking, well, hold on, the first commandment, I mean, what other God could I possibly have? You spoke everything into existence, Genesis 1. I rebelled against that. Myself, you've delivered me from slavery, from bondage, bondage. Like, what other God even is there if you're both creator and redeemer? And so the commandments are given in the context of a covenant relationship. The commandments are also given in the context of an exclusive relationship. Um, God owns the entire creation. We saw this back at the beginning of two weeks ago, back at the beginning of chapter 19, when he told Israel, I own it all, but you're my treasured possession. Thor and Oaken Shield, all the possess, all the, the gold and the wealth and the who knows what he had there under the mountain, but he had one treasured jewel among all of that, that gold, and it was the Arkenstone. And God told the people of Israel, I own all of it, but you are my Arkenstone. You are my treasured possession. So it's true that God owns all of creation. And at some level, the Ten Commandments are incumbent upon all men everywhere. But only Israel has been delivered from bondage. Only Israel has this covenant relationship. Only Israel has been brought out of it. Okay, now some of you might be thinking, well, Jeff, can I, can I just point out something to you for a second? There was nobody else enslaved in Egypt. Like, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to rain on your parade and suggest to you that, well, I mean, of course, they're the only ones he delivered because, you know, Esau's descendants weren't slaves in Egypt and the Canaanites weren't there. So, I mean, that, that seems kind of like not really a fair observation, except who alone is gathered around this mountain? Who alone gets the very creator of all the universe, the redeemer of God's people, guiding them by a, a pillar of cloud and fire? The Canaanites aren't here. The Parasite, Parasites aren't here. The Jebusites aren't here. None of the other ites are here. Esau's descendants aren't here. The Amalekites aren't here. They got beat up just a couple of weeks ago. God has an exclusive covenant relationship with His redeemed 
people. God has this this covenant relationship exclusively with one bride. Not two, not five, not a whole bunch. And, And even in the Old Testament, it's not so much the nation as it is anyone who's saved by grace alone through faith alone. And that's part of the point of Hebrews 11. God doesn't have this relationship with anybody else. It's it's not just a covenant relationship, but it's an exclusive covenant relationship. By the way, this is this is why this is why there's always this this thread throughout the Bible of of Israel chasing after other gods being compared to prostitution. Go read the book of Hosea. God doesn't have this special relationship with anyone else. But notice the commandment is for me to be equally exclusive in my relationship with him. He says to them, look, I have no other bride but you. You have no other God but me. I have no other lover but you. You have no other lover but me. He calls them to have no other before. And this this before. um, Before really isn't so much um, priority or hierarchy or ahead of. It's really in the presence of, before my face, if you will. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Let me, let me show you this problem. I'm going to skip ahead just a few years, if you don't mind. Turn to Joshua chapter 24. In Joshua 24, we get this great illustration of um, this very problem, this first commandment problem. Um, they're in the promised land. They've settled the promised land. They've kind of scattered around. At the beginning of Joshua 24, Joshua basically retells the story of the first 18, 19 chapters of Exodus. So you don't have to read those verses. We're right there. Uh, Then he gets into um, life in the promised land and, and recounting Uh, all that God had done for Israel to inherit this land. Uh, Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Wait, hold on. This is after the Ten Commandments. This is after the time they spend hanging out at Mount Sinai and and after they cross the Jordan into the promised land and Jericho's walls have collapsed and they've spread out throughout the land and and settled in um, in the promised land in Canaan, even though they haven't utterly destroyed everyone as they were supposed to. This is this is later. This is at the end of Joshua's life. Did you notice that language? They seem to still have with them the gods that they worshipped in Egypt. See, it's, it's easy for us to think that, well, 400 years of, of Israel in Egypt and they were exclusively worshipping God. I don't think so. They became pluralistic, polytheistic. They're still carrying around the gods that they worshipped in, in Egypt. We, we know that about Egypt. They worshipped Ra and 
and Isis and Osiris, Osiris, I don't know how you pronounce that. They're in Canaan and, and they're worshiping Molech and Baal and all sorts of other gods. They're in a place where there's polytheistic, pluralistic gods of all kinds for every different kind of thing. And, and they're surrounded by this. And Exodus 20 and then now again in Joshua 24, God's people are being called to worship him and him alone. They're being reminded in Joshua 24 of the first commandment, which it appears they're still not really keeping. They're still carrying the gods, the idols that they worshipped back in Egypt. And it's in that context that Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But notice what he says in verse 15. It may be evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. Well, then you're going to have to choose the gods of Egypt or the gods of Canaan. And Bob Dylan starts playing in your head. You got to serve somebody. It might be the devil. It might be the Lord. You got to serve somebody. So this becomes a problem. This becomes an, an issue in the hearts and lives of God's people for years and years to come. God wants our wholehearted devotion to Him just as we have His to us. Don't miss that. He calls us to have no other gods but Him precisely because He has no other bride but you. I have to keep the first commandment. But when you say it like that, I get to keep the first commandment. I want to. It's something I would long to be able to do. The commandments are given in the context of a covenant relationship. Uh, they're given in the context of an exclusive relationship they're given in the context of a personal relationship. You've heard me say this before. Somebody, Crossway, Crossway, if you're listening to this recording, Crossway needs to publish an SSV. Okay, the ESV is fine. It's the English Standard Version, that's what ESV stands for. That's what we have in our chairs and our pews here. That's what we use here. That's, that's all fine and good. But they really need to publish an SSV. Southern Standard Version. Because what Southerners understand is how to distinguish between you singular and you plural. My Greek professor from Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania understood that when he got a y'all, he knew exactly what he was getting. He he knew that we knew this is a you plural, not a you singular. This is actually where the King James helps. You're not going to hear that very often. But this is where the King James helps. Because they also distinguish between you plural and thee and thou singular. Some of you are now realizing, wait a minute. The commandments, thou shalt have. The you in this entire chapter is singular. It's not plural. God doesn't say, 
God spoke all these words. I am the Lord, y'all's God, who brought y'all out of the land, land of Egypt. No, he says, I am your God and your God and your God and your God. And, and Israel had two million plus people. We could be here a little while. If you individually pick out every single Israelite. Verse 3, you individually, thou, you singular, shall have no other God before me. In other words, God's brought you as an individual, you and you and you and you, out of slavery, out of bondage. He's delivered you from sin. And so now He wants you personally to worship and serve Him and Him alone. He wants your personal commitment to Him in response to His personal commitment to you. There's this sense in which... um, it's as though God on this mountain, thunder and lightning. So we've, we've lost that feeling, right? That was, that was in the previous passage. That was early. We've seen that already. And, and now that we get into the Ten Commandments, we lose that sense of thunderings and lightnings. But it's as though God wants every individual Israelite, every individual believer, every individual church member to hear Him say to each of them individually, I saved you. By the way, we we try to do some of this a little bit, even in the way we take communion. I mean, each of you gets bread. Each of you gets the cup. We take it together to sort of reflect the fact that He's saved me as an individual. That's why I'm holding this bread and holding this cup. But He's made me to be a part of an us, a part of a group. And so we take them together. We try to, to call attention to both the, the individual and the personal as well as the corporate. The commandments are given in the context of a covenant relationship, an exclusive relationship, a personal relationship, and a permanent relationship. We don't see this here. In, in Genesis chapter... In Genesis, that's not true. In Exodus chapter 31. Um, in Exodus 31, uh, at the very end of Exodus 31, verse 18, and He gave to Moses, God... When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. The Ten Commandments are written or etched in stone by God's own hand. You, you, you do realize you have graveyards, right? You walk through graveyards, you, you go by and visit and see gravestones. Sometimes Mary Laws actually had to do a project for a history class just a couple of weeks ago. She had to pick some guy in an old enough cemetery and do a history paper on this guy. Go to the library and learn what you could. You can find gravestones from hundreds of years ago and still read them. Like, they get wet, the ink doesn't run. They don't crumble up very easily and get lost. You don't, you don't, you know, accidentally throw a big giant stone into the trash. You accidentally throw papers away all the time and go, oops, I, I didn't mean to throw that away. I meant to keep that. 
the moral law is etched in stone because it's permanent. Because the relationship that God has with his people isn't going to end. It isn't going to change. The civil laws given to Israel as a theocratic nation, they're not etched in stone. They're gone because Israel is no longer that nation. The ceremonial law, which points us to Jesus, which we read about in Hebrews, which, Lord willing, that's where I intend to go after we finish Exodus. They're not written in stone precisely because they're not, they're not supposed to be permanent. They're going to come to an end because Jesus is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. The moral law, however, etched in stone because it's part of a permanent relationship that God has with his people. They're, they're permanent commandments. Finally, the commandments are given in the context of a relationship. And you say, okay, well, hold on. You've used that word like literally the other four times. It seems a little redundant to kind of use it now. Except I want to call attention to something, a connection that Jesus makes in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? You remember his answer? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes the Ten Commandments under those two. But did you notice the word he uses? These are acts of love. We reflect our love for God in getting to keep these commandments. We reflect our love for each other in getting to keep these commandments. These are a reflection of, of love for God and for others. We tend to come to these and make them have to. Well, here's my list. Um, and you see this, you see this several times in the New Testament as well, when people go, well, I've all, I've done those commandments. I've kept them all. Well, go sell and every, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Ooh. See, that was a reflection of hands and feet only. But true obedience is in the heart. True obedience comes from a desire and love to obey. We tend to make the commandments about have to Jesus wants us to make them about get to. It should be our delight to delight in the Lord our God who made us and saved us. How can we love the God who made us and save us? Saved us by keeping His commandments. Let me make just a couple of applications um, the first is sort of the cultural application. Uh, we live in a world where anything goes, and for that matter, everything goes. And about the only thing that doesn't go is anyone saying, well, this way is the way. It's certainly true of Christianity. I think it's probably true of anybody. If any religion were to stand up in, in, in the world we live in and say, well, they're all wrong except this one, that's the one thing you're not allowed to say is that... That this is exclusive. That this is the exclusive way to God. People can have their way. You can have your way. And, and they're all fine. And they all go the same place. And, and everything, you know, it, none of it matters. You, you can only affirm people around you. You can't tell them they're wrong. We live in a polytheistic 
pluralistic pagan culture. But the first commandment says there is only one God, the God of the Bible. And he alone are we called to worship and to glorify and to serve. Think about this for a second. You know about the only thing Jesus can't be is a way to God. Hear that word right. About the only thing Jesus can't be is a way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's either the way or he's not a way at all. The only thing Jesus can't be is one of many. And this commandment reminds us all over again that there is one true God. The God who, the God who has redeemed us. And called us to his own. A second sort of personal application. What are the idols that you have? What are the idols that you're still carrying around with you? If you were to ask yourself, what is it I love more than anything? Whatever is in that blank. If I could only have blank, then all would be right with the world. If I only couldn't lose blank, then all would be right with the world. If only I didn't have blank. Whatever goes in that blank, it's probably an idol. Probably something that says, you really need and want me more than you want the one true God. We make an idol of, of anything. Power, money, sex, yourself, anything at all. What are your idol tendencies? Calvin, uh, John Calvin famously called our hearts perpetual idol factories, not factories that aren't operating, factories that make idols, that produce idols. What are your idols? Third, here's an observation. At the heart of every other commandment is the first one. We, um, we break the fourth commandment um, when we break the fourth commandment, it's because uh, something else has become more important to us uh, than God and his will. If we break the eighth commandment, it's because something else has become so important to us uh, that we won't love God or our neighbor uh, enough to let our neighbor keep their stuff. At some level, every other commandment, when we break every other commandment, it's because we've broken this one already. And then lastly, what about the guilty? What happens to the one who's guilty of breaking this commandment? Which, by the way, we all are. Well, that's, where, that's where the law is a mirror to show you your sin. A mirror, I forget where this illustration came from. It's not mine, but it's, I think it's brilliant, which probably reflects the fact that it's not mine. You look in a mirror and it shows you where your face is dirty. You look in a mirror and it shows you where your clothes don't match. You look in a mirror and it shows you where your hair is messed up. You look in a mirror and it shows you these things about yourself. It doesn't fix them. It only shows you what needs to be fixed. You have to go somewhere else to fix that problem. So what about the guilty? You look to Jesus. You look to the second Adam who kept the law, fulfilled the law, because we cannot, who kept every one of these 
perfectly and joyfully because we don't, and yet who suffered and bled and died because we are guilty of breaking these commandments. Look to Christ and there find your Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mirror that you've given us that is the law. That not only shows us our guilt, but then shows us where we can find the righteous one, the obedient one, the faithful one to stand in our place. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for that obedience, for that faithfulness. Would you grow in us greater, deeper gratefulness for your substitutionary work and would you grow in us greater delight in getting to keep the law of God for your honor for your glory and by your grace we pray all of this in Christ's holy name amen